in a world full of half-truths, in a world directed by selfish impulses and hidden motivations, caginess and craftiness of speech, in the midst of a people who would rather blow smoke or flatter or avoid any level of personal conflict, who would rather shy away from necessary but difficult conversations, Jesus stands apart. And I absolutely love the clarity with which our Lord Jesus Christ speaks in Scripture. He does not hide anything. There's no baiting and switching. He doesn't promise you one thing only to deliver to you something else. He simply tells each and every one of us right up front things as they are. He gives us all the information at the outset. But the problem for us is that even with such clear teachings, warnings, encouragements and exhortations directly from the mouth of Christ to us recorded in his word we are always battling against the all too human tendency to minimize the areas of scripture we don't find comfortable or to amplify those areas of scripture that we really really want to look at at the expense of others we try to interpret God's word in selfish self-entitled self-protective ways and we encounter one of these difficult, clear, yet generally overlooked realities of the Christian life in our text, in our passage this morning. Throughout Scripture, we are witness to the consequences of serving Christ. We are witness to the realities of obedience to Christ's call to gospel mission and gospel duty in the world. We see it clearly throughout the scriptures. One of the clearest examples is that of the Apostle Paul, who in the second letter to the Corinthians gave a short outline of everything he had endured for the sake of bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ among lost sinners throughout the Roman Empire. As a servant of Christ, Paul had suffered imprisonments. He had suffered countless beatings and was often near death. And he goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. And he wrote, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. And listen to this, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Sounds pretty safe, doesn't it? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What hardships, what difficulties, what constant dangers the Apostle Paul faced as he preached the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from city to city to city. Ultimately, his obedience to the mission of Christ, his unswerving commitment to going into all the world, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded, cost Paul his life. 
Now, how could Paul put up with these things without folding under the pressure? How is it we never see in Scripture Paul wonder, as many have before him and many have after him, how could God let something like this happen to me? How is it we never see Paul jumping in and joining with protests against those very governments that hauled him before him, them? How is it that Paul didn't see any of the torments that he suffered at the hands of the world as some sort of odd or abnormal circumstance? How is it also that the Apostle Peter could write to the Christians scattered across the Roman Empire and exhort them with these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a radically different mindset than much of what we see in our own day, isn't it? In our own day, any suffering, any government interference, any trials, any insults, any torments, any arrests or persecutions for us are abnormal. They're an abnormal occurrence, one that we don't really truly expect to happen to us. It's one that causes much of the Western Christian world to lose their minds. To respond angrily rather than Paul and Peter. Paul and Peter responded as missionaries. They responded as gospel bearers regardless of the circumstance that they found themselves in and they exhorted everyone else to do the same. The disciples responded as they did because the Lord Jesus Christ could not have been any clearer with them about how the world will respond to the Christian proclaiming the gospel in it and to it. You see it right in verse 16 of our text this morning. Look at it. As Jesus sent the disciples on their very first missionary exercise, he told them this right from the start. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I want you to think about that illustration for a second. What is the expected and logical outcome for a sheep that lives and moves and breathes among wolves? What is the natural tendency of a wolf when there are sheep in the midst, in, its mid, in their midst? It's not to lick the sheep, in friendship. It's not to pet the sheep to comfort them. It's not to incorporate the sheep into their pack. No, the nature of a wolf when it sees a sheep is to bite that sheep, to devour that sheep, to harass that sheep, consume it, ultimately to kill it. And this is the metaphor Jesus uses for Christians in the world. This is the picture of the life of a disciple that Christ gives to his 12 here. And the 12 grasped what Jesus meant when he uses this illustration. Obedience to Jesus, 
living in this world as an obedient gospel proclaimer is not safe. It's rather dangerous. And Jesus never guarantees you, he did not guarantee the 12 that it would be a safe enterprise to take up. In fact, right from the outset, he made it clear, this is the most dangerous proposition you can ascribe to. For Paul the Apostle, he found himself in danger from every direction. Didn't matter where he looked, to whom he looked, it was danger. For the rest of the 12 disciples, aside from Judas, each one of them suffered greatly for their obedience and for their proclamation of the gospel. And in fact, tradition records that all but one of the 12 suffered gruesome, horrific deaths for their proclamation. And even our Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? He died because wicked sinners, wolves, metaphorically sunk their teeth into him and killed him. If you love the Lord, if you truly desire to serve the Lord and to obey his call for you in and to this world, to shine his light to sinners in darkness for the purpose of honoring Christ and seeing lost sinners turn to Christ in faith, you are, and hear me here, you are putting your life in danger. You are putting all that you have and all that you are at risk. This is why Jesus kept telling the disciples, telling people who would come to him, you better count the cost. You better count the cost of this life because this is no oddity. This is no unexpected reality. It's exactly, again, what Jesus told the disciples would be true about their lives. He told us this is what will happen. Again, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. These are not minced words. Jesus expressly and clearly speaks, outlining for each and every one of us who truly want to serve Jesus in this world the possibility, even expected outcomes of being an obedient servant called to the gospel proclaiming life. Persecutions will come. Mistreatments of various sorts, harassments, torments, and the like are not some unexpected byproduct of the Christian life, but are, according to Jesus, the expected results of living a godly, obedient, mission-oriented life in this world. So the question is, my fellow saints, why do you exist? Why are you here? What is your purpose on earth? Why are you living and breathing and moving about on this planet? The answer to that question, first and foremost, is most obviously that you and I exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our primary purpose. After that, our mission on earth, the reason that we are here, the reason the church as a whole exists, is to do what Christ commanded us to do which is to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. During our brief sojourn here, we are tasked with a clear mission, with an obvious objective, and that objective has been clearly set out. You, if you love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, are his ambassador here on earth. You are the one through whom God makes his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him by grace through faith in his son. 
That's our mission. That's your mission. You are here as salt in the world. You are here as light to the world. You are here to point people by your proclamations of Jesus to saving faith. The problem, however, is that while we are called to make an impact for Jesus on earth, quite often the opposite occurs, doesn't it? Rather than us going out into the world to impact the world, rather than us recognizing the risk that such a life brings, instead of going and shaping the world by seeing people saved as a result of gospel proclamation, we instead are impacted by the world. And the world begins to shape our minds, shape our goals, shape our priorities, our focus, and our values. And so instead of changing the world, we are changed by it. We don't like being sheep among wolves. And so instead, we try to just find no trouble. As the people of Christ, we must be on guard against the acceptance of, the embrace of, conforming to and being shaped by secular values and worldly mindedness. And one of the clearest examples of this, one of the biggest areas in which we has, as Christians have been shaped and formed to the world that we live in, is the high value we place on our own personal safety. Given what Jesus has just told us, and you might, as many do, think that Christ's primary plan for your life is one of ease, some level of prosperity, good health, and more importantly, safety. And the embrace of such an idea your mind being formed by such an idea is kind of understandable given how pervasive that idea is in our culture. If you think about it, even the most culturally influential churches and ministries and preachers and authors throughout North America, those preachers and authors and teachers that regularly fill stadiums with people who want to have their ears tickled by such a message, put that out there. Constantly touting, constantly telling you how great you are, constantly telling you how safe and healthy and wealthy God wants you to be, constantly telling you that, no, 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 it's not eternal life that is the greatest thing that we can aspire to and wait for and expect, but it's life here and now. The only problem with that is Jesus. And it's not just the culturally influenced megachurches and ministries and books that are promoting these ideas. They got it from somewhere. They got it from our culture. In our culture, think about it, personal safety and comfort are primary concerns. They are the most pressing consideration. They are the matter of greatest importance, the factor to which every other decision in our lives must bow. The desire for personal safety has overtaken even for many the command of Christ to gather and worship with his people. As some, since the onset of risk in gathering, has led them not to attend church in almost a year and a half. 
And you know what? Think about this for a second. 18 months ago, did anyone here think that anything could have kept you away from church for 18 months? We would have sat here and said, nothing can keep me away from church. Nothing can keep me away from gathering with the saints. Nothing can keep me from singing songs with my fellow believers and sitting under the teaching of God's word with my fellow believers. Then your personal safety was put at risk. Do you see it? Because this is one of the primary... ideas in our life, we see that our culture has created a seemingly endless list of things dedicated to safety, right? You got safety nets, safe spaces, safety councils, safety devices, safeguards, safekeeping, safety management, safety harnesses, safety belts, safety goggles, safety helmets, and the list could go on and on and on and on. It's a tough message. As we go about our lives in the world, we see signs. I see signs posted on the telephone poles. Be be safe. Stay safe. I'm reminded that safety comes first. When we go to our places of employment, we see workplace safety standards and signs with slogans like, safety is our number one priority. Can you see how... Safety has become the be-all and the end-all. Now, I want to be clear. I, uh, I want you to hear what I am not saying here, okay? I am not saying, nor am I teaching, that anyone ought to be reckless and unsafe in this world. When you drive, put on your safety belt. When you go to work, if it's called for, put on your safety helmets, your goggles, and your gloves. There is no need to take any unnecessary risks in those areas. However, what I am saying is safety must never become the idol to which obedience to Christ bows. Why? Because from the outset, we need to know what Jesus clearly taught. Obeying the Lord's call to mission in this world is not safe. And yet... Even though that is the case, we are still called to be out on mission. Remember what Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of this world. You see, this is difficult for us because here in the West, followers of Jesus in the West have lived in relative ease and comfort and safety for so long that we've come to assume that this is simply part and parcel of the Christian life, right? It's become the default position for us, and to a degree, we really don't expect serious personal, financial, and familial consequences for our service to Christ, and we are shocked when it does happen. If a Christian in North America faces any level of difficulty, harassment, or, God forbid, imprisonment, we tend to respond with like a, are you serious? I can't believe that's happening even though Jesus told us it would happen. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, and this is is what has happened throughout the vast majority of the Christian world throughout history. Christians have not been safe. 
and comfort has not been a given. Just go back to the early church, for example. The early church was consistently fleeing and ducking for cover. The Christians in the early church were thrown to lions and bears and torn apart for the enjoyment of the people and the governments who sought to put an end to them. And so I want you to know, if your goal in life is to remain carefree, to avoid any earthly consequence to your service to Christ, if your life is organized in such a way that you cannot bear the thought of being persecuted, being unsafe, if your focus is on how I can be comfortable in this life, how I can live like everyone else around me, how I can fit in so that nobody really notices that I'm a Christian, risking nothing to preach and to proclaim the gospel, then hear me clearly, your goals in this life do not align with the call that Jesus has placed on his disciples. You are in imitating and succumbing to the world instead of obeying and imitating the Lord Jesus Christ's call to reflect him and to preach him to the world. And my son bought me a copy of Moby Dick. I love that book. And I was reading the sermon preached by Father Mapple in chapter 6 yesterday. And he had this line. He said, Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Your gospel duty is to herald the call of repentance and faith to the world. A a message that will make your life more difficult and may even threaten everything you own. It might cost you life. It might cost you limb. It might cost you earthly freedom. It might cost you prosperity. And heaven forbid, it might even cost you your safety. And so if you have organized your life in such a way that you avoid going out into the world and proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ so as to ensure that your life is not affected or shaken up in any negative way by the faith that you profess or you claim to profess, hear me, you do not want to imitate the Lord. You do not want to obey the Lord that you profess to love and serve. And I know this is difficult. I know it's not an easy message to bring, but it's the truth. Jesus sends his disciples out as sheep amongst Wolves, and he still sends us his disciples as sheep out among wolves. And those wolves will, according to Jesus in our text, hand you over to the courts, flog you in their synagogues, drag you before governors and kings. You might even experience betrayal at the hands of those closest to you in life. Jesus said fathers will deliver their children and children will rise up in rebellion against parents. None of this sounds very safe. It all sounds very dangerous. Every single one of us must recognize and must understand and must count the cost. Living in obedience to the mission of Christ will mean that the world, for the most part, hates you. The world of wolves will do all that it can to devour and consume you. The world will respond harshly and swiftly to your proclamation of the gospel. And you, every one of you, must consider this well. This is an expected byproduct of believing in and obeying Jesus Christ. You put your safety at risk. 
But the temptation for all of us here will be to craft and invent ways to bypass this, right? This harsh reality of serving Christ. The temptation will be I want to try and become one of those Christians, you know, that everyone likes. I want to be one of those Christians that everyone thinks is cool and that everyone wants to hang around and everyone thinks is just super awesome. But do you really think that you're smart enough, that you're savvy enough, you're slick enough to find a way to be obedient to Jesus and have everyone like you? Let me tell you something. That's something even Jesus himself couldn't figure out. When we seek the world's approval, the mission always suffers. And I get it. You like to be liked. I like to be liked. You like it when people like you. I like it when people like me. I like you. Hopefully you like me. We like that. We don't want conflict. In fact, we do our best to avoid conflict. And so it's very difficult to recognize and accept this reality that is inherent to our faith. Let me tell you something. Jesus loves you. If you are his child, he loves you with a love that you can't even begin to explain. But at the very same time, the world doesn't. The world does not love you. Why? Because you and I are a constant reminder. You and I are a persistent and consistent thorn in the side of our world, of the one that our world desperately wants to forget. This is why the mission is so dangerous. This is why Jesus has called us to minister to and among what he terms wolves. Because that seems a little harsh, doesn't it? That Jesus would call lost sinners and, and the people of the world wolves? I want you to think about it for a second. What is it when you are called to go into the world and proclaim the gospel? What is it that you think you're doing? What are you bringing Think about it. When you bring the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to repent and believe in him, turn from your sin and turn in trust to Jesus Christ, you are battering against and you are chipping away at and openly declaring war on their greatest idol, themselves. And no sinner wants to hear another person call out their sin. No sinner wants to be told that their practices are sinful, that the things they love and enjoy are sinful. I mean, for those of us with the Holy Spirit, it's difficult enough for us with the Holy Spirit to be told about our sin, isn't it? Imagine those without the Spirit. The Apostle Paul makes this clear to us. This is what he's getting at in Romans chapters 1 to 3. Some of the most important passages for understanding the true nature of humanity are found in these chapters. Some of the most important chapters to help us understand what we are up against, what we are doing when we bring the gospel to the world. There in Romans chapters 1 to 3, we read that God has so clearly revealed himself to humanity in creation that all humans everywhere are without excuse. That's Romans 1.20. But what exactly did God reveal, generally speaking, about himself in the creation? Two things. Two aspects and attributes of his person are revealed. One, you can see it in, again in Romans 1.20. He is eternal in power 
Two, he is divine in nature. Both of those attributes speak to the fact that God stands outside of humanity. That God, the God who exists, is over us, is above us, is more powerful than us. And his being all-powerful, his being eternal, his being divine means that he is one to whom we must submit ourselves. He is the one to whom we must orient our lives. He is the one to whom we are to live our lives. Our lives are to be lived for the sake of someone outside of ourselves. But this is something humanity in general simply will not do. This is the greatly unacceptable proposition for humanity, isn't it? We don't want to be told what to do by anyone outside of ourselves. We don't want to conform or pattern our life to anyone outside of ourselves. And so humanity has responded to the clear revelation of God in a number of ways as we read throughout Scripture. Humanity has, first, either sought to eliminate God altogether. As we saw way back in Genesis 11, you remember when the people of earth put their heads together in Genesis 11 and said, Come! Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Why are they so adamant to get the top of that tower into the heavens? They hope to storm the tower or they hope to storm the heavens, take them by force and become the gods of their own lives. They hope to make a name for themselves. However, what we realize in Genesis 11 is that this will never work. Because God is seated on his throne, and no matter how great the human situation becomes, no matter how high our tower gets, no matter how hard humanity tries to eliminate God from the equation, God must look down upon our feeble, pitiful labors. And he scatters them, and he disperses them at will. But if they can't eliminate God... Humanity will instead, in their ungodliness and unrighteousness, suppress the truth of God that has been so clearly revealed in creation, Romans 1.18. And so humanity, as Paul says, refuses to honor him as God or to give thanks to him as God. And as a result of not honoring God and not giving thanks to him, Paul says the byproduct of that is that humans become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are increasingly darkened, Romans 1.21. And even though humans claim to be wise, they become fools. And in their foolishness, they exchange God, eternal in power, divine in nature, for lies. And instead of worshiping and serving the Creator who stands outside of ourselves, we begin to, sub- to craft and create idols that we can control. God being eternal in power and divine in nature means that we cannot tame Him, we cannot control Him. And so humanity turns to suppress that knowledge and craft idols that we can, that permit or that endorse or that encourage the passions and the dispositions and the sinful tendencies that are already present in our sinful hearts. You can see it, right? As pagans in the Roman Empire created religions that permitted and encouraged illicit sexual practice. As humanity conjured up religions that, with gods that they can control, gods that they can put in their debt by performing certain deeds or doing certain works. And if that doesn't work, in our own day, humanity just simply drops the pretense. All pretenses are dropped now. We don't craft little wooden idols in North America 
We simply explicitly declare and worship ourselves. Right? There is no pretense anymore. Self-worship. Life according to the flesh. It's just celebrated outright now. So humanity is filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, they are gossips, slanderers, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And all the while they paint the this, this, these, these sins and their rejection of God in the colors of virtue. This is the human condition. This is what you are sent into. This is what you are bringing the gospel into. This has been the human condition from the start, and you, yes, you, are tasked with pointing people back to the God that they hate so vigorously, the God that they seek to suppress You, yes, you are called to shine the light of the good news of Jesus Christ into these dark places. Is it any wonder the vast majority will respond then in the ways that Jesus predicted here in Matthew chapter 10? Our great shepherd sends us out into the midst of wolves as sheep. He doesn't tell us to remain safely in the pen. He sends us out in the midst of the wolves. And listen, listen, look at what we are sent out as, right? You are sent out as a sheep. Sheep have no power in themselves. Sheep have no natural defenses. Sheep cannot on their own repel wolves or defend themselves, and yet Jesus sends them anyway. This is seemingly irresponsible, isn't it? And yet that's exactly where Christ sends you, his sheep. And many of the wolves, as you go out as sheep, will indeed, glory of glories, wonder of wonders, hear the message of the gospel that you bring, and they will too be transformed by God's good grace into sheep. But others will bite and seek to devour you. And your safety as a sheep among the wolves is not guaranteed. But as Jesus will encourage his disciples later, have no fear. The world might hate you, But remember, in the midst of the world's hatred, you are of great value to your Father in heaven. And you will be rewarded by him with a bounty that will make all the difficulties and all the troubles that you have faced in this world seem like absolutely nothing in comparison. So Jesus continues, How are you then, as sheep sent out into the midst of of wolves, how are you to live? Well, look at the, the next little line here of the text. First, be wise as serpents. You see that? Be wise as serpents. The idea here being the gospel alone, the gospel itself, causes enough offense all by itself. Being a proclaimer of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ means that you are already, by virtue of that gospel, the aroma of death to those who are perishing. And so... We must avoid increasing our already offensive odor with other things. Jesus is counseling us here. Be judicious. Be sensible. Exercise good judgment in what you say and what you don't. You see, throughout the life of Jesus on earth, people continually, the Pharisees consistently tried to get Jesus to trip up, right? 
to pose questions and problems to him that they could use against him to the governments, to the Roman government. And Jesus didn't give them anything, didn't give them any footholds. He was wise in his words. When they implauded how to tangle Jesus, one of my favorites is in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees came up to him and said, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in our day, many might launch into some diatribe about government overreach and speak in what Jesus, what Jesus would term unwise ways. And if there was ever a government that could be spoken against, guess what? It was this one. This one would crucify people for speaking against them. But Jesus was too wise and too shrewd. If he was going to offend, it would be on account of the gospel. And so he wisely said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And as you live in this world, imitating your Lord Jesus Christ, be wise enough to think through the best course of action. How do I best honor and obey Jesus here? How do I ensure that the cause of offense, if there is going to be any, comes from the gospel alone? and not from some foolish peripheral words or arguments or assertions or preferences or opinions that I may add to this conversation. Do not give any reason for offense other than the gospel. The gospel's enough. In what, in what you say and, and, and in how you choose to say it. Do not be a loud-mouthed, abrasive, arrogant, belligerent person. Don't, by your attitudes, give people any reason to dismiss the gospel other than the gospel itself. And in a world where everyone feels compelled to let everyone else know their opinions on every single subject, you, as you live among wolves, being a sheep sent by Christ, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And he wrote to the Colossian church, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. In other words, be wise as a serpent. But not only as we, are we as sheep to be wise as serpents, but secondly, we are to be innocent as doves. You see that? That's the next one. Innocent as doves. The idea here ranges from being innocent as to evil, being pure in obedience and devotion to the Lord, remaining true to God's word in the midst of the difficulties that will come with obeying God's word. In all things, out of a pure conscience, obey Christ, serve Christ, regardless of the wolves' actions towards you. I was uh, shocked, absolutely shocked, these last couple weeks when I listened to a podcast from a pastor in the United States who began telling his listeners that it is appropriate, not simply acceptable, but appropriate to deceive your government. I was floored. It is a direct violation of Christ's command here to be innocent as doves. 
But this is where we are getting. Because we have lived so long in a safe world, we would rather be deceptive in the world than innocent as doves. I got a little face with a, in my notes here that I wrote because it was shocking. Paul's writing to the Philippian believers explains it well when he said this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. Now you tell me how deception adds to the light that you shine to the world. So according to Jesus, then he sends out his disciples as sheep in the midst of wolves and he commands his sheep to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he also makes clear that even if we are wise as serpents and innocent as doves, the world, that will not be enough to keep the worlds from attacking. And so he says in verse 17, beware of men, right? Beware of men. The illustration of wolves is now made clear. Beware of men. Be on guard against humanity, alert to the schemes and the wiles of the sinners. Understand and be wise to the intentions of the unsaved. Don't easily entrust yourself to them. Beware of their attempts to trap and snare God's people. Because by your witness in the world, you will be hated. By, in our text, we see three things. The governing authority, perhaps your very own family and blood relatives, and the general mass of humanity. So first, the governing authorities will hate you for obeying Christ's call to mission among men. Look at what he says in verse 17. They will deliver you up to the courts. Meaning, they will hand you over to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the authorities in Jerusalem, and those authorities will then flog you in their synagogues. Flogging here is the whipping and the scourging. This is the worst type of beating that you could get that wouldn't kill you. And this was a regular occurrence among the, the apostles. In Acts chapter 4, 540, for example, just, just in a flippant sort of way, you see that the apostles were beaten because they preached Christ. And they went away rejoicing. They went away rejoicing for being counted worthy to suffer for his name. Not only the, the Jewish authorities, but look at verse 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this text. Jesus expects this to be the case, and he prepared his disciples. He prepares us who might endure the same consequence from government, governing authorities and tells us how we ought to respond to the wrath of governing authorities. When we are dragged in front of kings and governors, he says, you will be so for my sake. See that? You will be. It's not an abnormal thing. It's not a shocking thing. It ought not to be a surprising thing. When this happened, don't be surprised as though something yeah, abnormal is happening. Something weird is occurring. Jesus explicitly said it would happen. And when it does, look at the text. Does it tell us that when we are brought before governors and kings for the sake of Christ, that we yell, that we scream, that we kick, that we tweet, that we start a GoFundMe page so that we can sue them? No, no, what does, it, what does the text tell us? Are we Bible people or not? What does the text tell us? To bear witness 
to bear witness. If we are hauled before governors and kings we have been br- for the sake of Christ, we have been brought to that place to bear witness. You see, our gospel work never, ever stops, no matter where we are. And again, I love the Apostle Paul because no one took these words to heart more than he did. When Paul was arrested by the authorities for his proclamation of the gospel, he used every single opportunity, every time he was brought before a governor, every time he was brought before a king. Do you know what he did? He tried to persuade them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorites is Acts 26, when Paul stands before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa has the power in his hand to release him or to keep him in chains. And when Paul stands before Agrippa, he begins telling him about Jesus, the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He tells Agrippa about what Christ commanded him to do, to go to the Gentiles, to open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Paul said to Agrippa that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to to be raised from the dead, he would proclaim both light and light light both to the Jews and to the Gentiles. Paul's gospel proclamation before King Agrippa was so clear that Festus, who was the governor, was also in the room, standing beside. He interjected and blurted out, Paul, you're out of your mind. And Paul said something to Festus and turned his eyes right back to Agrippa and kept on going bearing witness to Christ, trying to persuade him. And Agrippa himself in Acts 26, 28 said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And as Paul remained under arrest by the Romans, as he wrote his final letters to Timothy and the Ephesian believers, and he asked, that, he asked them to pray for him. And what did he ask them to pray for him for? His release? No. Did he call on them all to come and storm the doors of the governor's mansion? No. Look at what he said in Ephesians 6, 19 to 20. I love the Apostle Paul. He said, pray, Ephesian believers, pray that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul asks Christians, not his fellow believers, to pray that he would have increased boldness to bear witness to Jesus in front of the kings and the magistrates and the governors. That was his prayer. Paul understood what Jesus said. He knew that such circumstances would arise and that Paul, even under arrest, even in chains, did not cease to be an ambassador for Christ. No, he was now simply an ambassador for Christ in a different location, but still an ambassador nonetheless. Let the the Apostle Paul be your example. Instead of long diatribes and angry protests as though what is happening to you in this world, what is happening to Christians all across North America right now and in the world, isn't exactly what Christ said was going to happen, 
Pray for those Christians who are taken to prison. Pray for those Christians who must stand before magistrates and kings and governors. Pray that they would be bold and pray that they would be courageous as they bear witness to Christ in those settings. How do you know this is not exactly where Christ wants them to be because it is that person who will bring the gospel to bear to a king who will accept it? Over the last little while, I have not seen this type of mentality proclaimed, even though it's what Jesus is speaking to here. In fact, I've heard the opposite. I've heard us, instead of proclaiming the Gospels, belly aching about our earthly freedoms. And I want you to just know something as an aside. If your sense of freedom is determined by or contingent upon your earthly situation, by being imprisoned, by having things taken from you in this earth, then it's too low of a definition of freedom. Christian freedom is so much greater than that. Paul, when he was in prison, was free. John Bunyan, when he was taken by the English governments and kept in prison because he preached the gospel, was free. These, the, the, the apostles, when they were in prison and they were singing hymns, were free because that's just the reality of our life as Christians. Anywhere we go, no matter what happens to us in this world, even if our life is taken from us, we are free. You are free. And your definition of freedom needs to be elevated. So pray and encourage your fellow believer with the promise of Christ to those who are dragged before the authorities for his sake. What he says next in the text, in verses 19 to 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So the promise here is not that you will learn all of the legal mumbo-jumbo and the legal defense techniques and the criminal code of wherever you are, although I guess that could happen. But the Spirit of your Father speaking through you is such that the Holy Spirit will speak through the defendant. And as we've learned, what is the Holy Spirit going to speak through the defendant? The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not going to be simply the government that hates you, but it might also very well be your own family. Those of your own household now, Jesus will more specifically address this in verses 34 to 39, so we're not going to deal with it here. We'll take it up more fully there, but simply know this. Obedience to Christ will bring strife to your very own doorstep, into the very kitchens, kitchen tables of your house. So, in the end, all things considered, we must know this. Look at verse 22. You will be hated by all. You see that? You will be hated by all. By governments, by the people to whom we minister, and perhaps even by our very own families. Why? Look at what the text says. For my name's sake. The world and the, our culture appreciates a Jesus of its own creation. 
You can hear it when they speak, right? Jesus doesn't judge. Uh, oh, yes, he does. So repent. Jesus will accept all choices and lifestyles. Jesus will bless love between people in whatever form it takes. Uh, no, he won't. So repent. Jesus is a perfect gentleman, and we, him and I have our own thing going. He understands why I do what I do and why I don't do all of the things that he says to do in the scripture. No, he doesn't. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe. This true Jesus is too much for a sinful world to bear because Jesus, and by extension, you who bring Jesus to the world, condemn their sin. And when you condemn their sin, the world reacts with hatred and persecution of those who bring this most threateningly clear message. However, in closing, persist, endure, count the cost, decide, am I willing to leave my safety behind? Am I willing to risk the danger Jesus speaks of here? Because look at what Jesus said next, the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who persists, the one who refuses to stop, the one who keeps going regardless of the consequences, the one who perseveres will in the end be revealed to be a true disciple. And as you go and as you face the difficulties of the world, you will be tempted at times to drop out of the race. You will be tempted to be like Demas who deserted the faith out of a love for the world in 2 Timothy 4.10. You will be tempted to come up with some excuse. Maybe it's, I'm too old and I've served my time. Or maybe I'm too young and I'm not ready yet. Or maybe you might walk away from the faith you profess because your great love, your great riches, your safety and your comfort might be threatened. But endurance is the mark of a true disciple. Endurance is a demonstration of genuine faith. Endurance reveals whether one truly loves the Lord or not. And James counsels us to be patient in suffering and to consider those blessed saints who remain steadfast under trials and to learn from their examples, to look to your Lord Jesus Christ who endured the torments and the sufferings of the cross for your sake so that you might be forgiven by grace through faith in him. Christian life is not safe. Jesus never promised it would be. There is a cost to obeying Christ's call to herald the gospel. Are you willing to pay it? Are you willing to pay it? Are you willing to put yourself in danger, to put yourself in harm's way, to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves, to bring the message of salvation to the world? Are you prepared to live wise as a serpent and innocent, innocent as, dove, as a dove among the wolves? Are you prepared to stand before governors and kings for the sake of Jesus to bear witness to them? Are you willing to endure no matter what the cost and in so doing receive the crown of life? I urge you to say yes and to mean it in the end Jesus is worth it Jesus is worth it 
Father, we praise you and we thank you for being so clear in your word, for giving us the information out front. Lord, we know that we can trust every word that comes from your mouth. We know that you are not going to uh, bait a hook and then, and then switch it with something else. But we know that when you speak and when you tell us what the Christian life is going to be like, that that's what it's going to be like. So, Father, I pray for measures of the Holy Spirit in us that are supernatural, that we would be filled to such a degree that we would be your ambassadors to the world, that you would make your appeal through each and every one of us here at Winona Gospel Church to the world to be reconciled to God by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. And I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, help us to endure to the end and reveal a genuine faith in Christ. We can't do it on our own. We need you, and we need each other, and we praise you in his name. Amen.